The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. We are in Romans chapter 3 today, and we're going to do something slightly different. We're going to go back to Romans chapter 3, verse 2, and we're going to take a little bit of a journey and just a little bit of an excursion, if you will, and talk a little bit about the Word of God, uh, about the Bible, uh, what it is, and more importantly, um, how we are to understand it as Christian people. So um, we're going to do that today, but we're going to do that in the context of what Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 3. So let's just go ahead and take a look at Romans chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and then we'll jump into this little excursion. Paul asks this question, then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, last week we said that Paul has a keen legal mind. And as he's making his argument here in the first two chapters of Romans, talking about the sorry states of humanity and the need for salvation, he makes it very clear that it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or you're a Gentile, you're both in the same boat, and it is a sinking boat. He says, all men, all women, without exception, are under the judgment of God because they have suppressed the truth. And all of the religion in the world is not going to save you. All of the hard work in the world is not going to save you. There's only one way that you can be saved, and that is through the means which God is about to provide or has provided, what Paul is going to talk about here in the rest of this letter. Now, Paul knew that there would be Jews who would immediately raise their hands and object. They would say, well, now, wait a minute. Are you telling me that there's no advantage then to being a Jew? Aren't we God's chosen people? Didn't God speak to us? Didn't God reveal himself to us? Didn't God give us his law? Didn't God give us the prophets and so forth? Paul knew that's what they were going to say, and he anticipated that. And that's why it's a rhetorical question here at the beginning of this third chapter. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? It's as if the Jew is saying, well, then there's no point in being a Jew. Here we are with all of these kosher laws. Here we are with all of these regulations and restrictions. But if you're telling us, Paul, that we're saved in the same way that the Gentiles are saved, there's no point in being a Jew. And Paul says that's not exactly the case. There's a great deal of value in being a Jew. And he says this in verse 2. To begin with, the Greek word we pointed out last week is proton, means first, like prototype is the first of its type. Paul is saying chiefly, first of all, the greatest advantage that the Jews have that no other people have is that they have been given the oracles of God, the oracles of God. That's simply another way of saying they have been given the word of God. Now, we talked about a number of other advantages that Paul lists. If you fast forward to Romans chapter 9, he lists all of the other advantages that the Jews have. But here in Romans chapter 3, he says, supremely, they have the advantage of God's word. And that's what I want to talk a little bit about today. The Greek word that he uses there is logia. It is translated as oracles, but as I said, the NIV says the very words of God. This would, of course, to Paul's listeners, have been the Old Testament, given the fact that the New Testament by this point had not yet been written. That's an important thing for us to remember as New Testament Christians, as people of the New Covenant, to remember that the Old Testament is just as much the Word of God as the New Testament. There are some who would have you believe that what you have is one God who is revealed in the Old Testament and another God that is revealed in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you've got the God of 
wrath and judgment, but in the New Testament, you've got the God of grace and mercy. And in the Old Testament, you've got the law, but in the New Testament, we are under God's grace. Actually, the church condemned that view. It was espoused by an early Christian heretic by the name of Marcion in the second century, and this was condemned. Uh, The church was very clear. The whole of the Bible is God's word, from Genesis right on through to the book of Revelation. So it is all God's word. But certainly, Paul was talking about the Old Testament here. He said they've been given the word of God. But as I said, even the New Testament writers, as they were working, as they were engaged in their ministries, recognized that they were, in fact, being carried along by the Holy Spirit, so that what they were producing was on par with the Old Testament. So Paul's acknowledging the fact that the Old Testament is the Word of God, but even he recognized that as he was writing this epistle to the Romans and his other writings, that he was actually being carried along by the Holy Spirit and speaking with the authority of Christ himself. Let me give you an example of how that's true. Skip ahead, keep your finger there in Romans 3, and skip ahead toward the very end of the New Testament to 2 Peter. Now, this is one of those rather obscure passages that many people might just gloss over, but it tells us something important about how the apostles understood their own ministry and their own words. So this is 2 Peter. This is chapter 3. Peter, of course, was that other great apostle. When we think of the apostles, there were a number of them, but the ones that we think of as being the greatest were Peter and Paul. Now, this is Peter. He's writing, we don't know exactly to whom. Uh, This is commonly referred to as a Catholic epistle. Now, Catholic has nothing to do with the Roman Catholic Church. That word Catholic simply means universal. It's described by scholars as a Catholic epistle because unlike Paul's letter to the Romans, which was specifically to the Roman church, or his letter to the Ephesians, which was to the Christians in Ephesus or Philippi or whatever it may be, we don't know who the readers are here. It's generally understood that Peter was writing to a whole group of Christians, not in any particular place. That's why it's called a Catholic epistle. But it's interesting what he says, beginning in verse 14. He's writing to these believers. He's trying to encourage them. And he says this, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. In other words, as you are waiting for the consummation, as you are waiting for the coming of God in Jesus Christ at the end of the age, he says, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. In other words, Peter is saying, just remember, I'm saying the same thing that Paul said. But then he goes on to does this. He says, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them in these matters, there are some things in them, that is in Paul's letters, that are hard to understand. Well, there's probably nobody here today that would disagree with that. There are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do what? The other scriptures. Now, that's curious, isn't it? What is Peter saying? Peter is saying that Paul's writings, which are often misunderstood and distorted by other people, are just like other scriptures. He doesn't say they're like the scriptures. He said they are like the other scriptures. So Peter is acknowledging that the words of Paul are, in fact, the oracles of God. In the same way, that the Old Testament was regarded by the Jews as the oracles, the very words of the Lord. So that's one of the reasons why, that is the primary reason why we take the Bible seriously, and Paul says that is why, of all the advantages that the Jews had, this was their chief advantage, because it is through his word that God speaks to us. You know, many people are interested in relics, 
But of all the relics on earth, there is none more precious to us than God's word, because it's not a dead letter. God continues to speak to us through the Bible, down through the centuries, even to the present day. So let's talk a little bit about the Bible, because it is so important, and you'll always hear me encouraging to bring your Bibles to church, encouraging you to read the Bible, encouraging to live under the Bible. But how do we do all of that? I thought it might be helpful today just to take an opportunity, take a few moments, and actually help you to do something practical. That is how you can understand and read and study the Bible today. Well, the first thing we need to understand, and I think this is, and I've said this many times before, I think the big issue that we face in Western Christianity today and in American Christianity today is the authority of the Bible. I think that's the great issue. You'll hear people say, well, the great issues are human sexuality, and all of that sort of thing. But actually, that's not the real issue. The real issue is authority. Uh, what place does the Bible have in the life of the church? And Paul is very clear in his second letter to Timothy as to the place of the Bible in the life of the Christian church. Keep your finger there in Romans and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to come back to this passage a little later on because it's important for a number of reasons. But this is how Paul describes Scripture. This is how he describes the Bible. He is speaking to his young friend Timothy, who is going to take over the responsibility of leading the church as Paul is coming to the end of his ministry. As a matter of fact, when Paul wrote this second letter to Timothy, he was in prison in Rome. It was his final imprisonment in Rome. He was locked away in what was known as the Mamertine Jail, and he would be martyred shortly after this letter was written. It's been described as his last will and testament. And here's what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. For all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or the woman of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Now, my translation says breathed out by God. If you're reading from the New International Version, it says something very similar to that. If you're reading from the King James Version, it says all Scripture is inspired by God. Now, there's nothing wrong with that translation, inspired by God. But the literal, the literal rendering of the phrase is breathed out by God. The Greek is theopanoustos. I've often said that, you know, Byron, Shakespeare, they were inspired. It's hard to read the poetry. It's hard to read the literature without being carried along and, and recognizing that this person was an inspired individual. But when we speak of the scripture, we don't mean that the scripture is inspired in the same way that William Shakespeare was inspired. We regard the Bible as in a completely different category altogether. And that's why this translation is so important. The Greek word, as I said, is theopanoustos, theo, from which we get theology. It means God. Panoustos is the word from which we get our term pneumonia, panuma. It means breath, wind, or spirit. What Paul is saying is that what we have here in the Holy Bible are the very words of God breathed out from him to us. If you want to hear God speak, you don't have to go up on a mountain and have an encounter with a burning bush. You can open this word and God will speak to you through us. Now, the church has recognized this down through the centuries. There was a point in the life of the church when it lost sight of this uh, in the Middle Ages, and it would take a reformation to bring the church back to its understanding of the place of Scripture. But that's what the Reformation was all about. You may recall that there were five great battle cries of the Reformation. We call them the five solas. And the first of those was sola scriptura. Scripture alone is the authority for the life 
of the church. Now that we've gone to talk about sola gratia, that is by grace alone, sola fide, by faith alone, we talk about soli deo gloria, we do this for the glory of God alone, sola Christus through Christ alone. But the first of the solas is scripture alone. Scripture alone is the ultimate authority for the life of the church. Now, Anglicans tempered that somewhat. Anglicans said it's not scripture alone, but scripture has a place of primacy. Now, what Anglicans were saying is that there are other authorities in the life of the church besides scripture, because there are some issues on which the Bible simply does not speak. For example, what are clergymen supposed to wear on Sunday? Should they wear a coat and tie? Should they wear skinny jeans and a button-down shirt? Should they wear vestments? And what vestments should they wear? Cassock and surplice or chasubles and stoles? The Bible doesn't say anything about that. So if you look to the Bible to find answers as to what clergymen in the 21st century should wear, you're not going to find anything. The Bible doesn't speak to that. So we appeal to other forms of authority. But on those issues where the scripture does speak, those spiritual matters, those matters pertaining to the soul, Anglicans say scripture is the ultimate authority for our life. Now, this is borne out even in our own Book of Common Prayer. If you go to the back of the Book of Common Prayer to what is known as the 39 Articles of Religion, you can hear about the authority of the Bible. Let me just share this with you because I think it's important. If you've never read the 39 Articles, I want to encourage you to do so because they can be very, very helpful. Sometimes people say, well, Anglicans don't really have doctrine. Oh, we certainly do. And that doctrine is contained here in the 39 Articles. It's interesting to note that when we were in the Episcopal Church, the 39 Articles in the 79 Prayer Book were taken and placed under the category or the heading, historical documents, as though they have historical value, but they're no longer binding. Since we have joined the Anglican Church of North America, these are now required for subscription by all clergy. The 39 Articles. And here's what the 39 Articles say. Article number 6, page 868 in the 79 prayer book. Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man that it should be believed as an article of faith or thought requisite or necessary to salvation. And then it goes on to list the number of canonical books and the names of the books of the Old and New Testament. Now, I think that's very important. Holy Scripture contains all things necessary to salvation. John Wesley once said, I want to know the way to heaven. I want to know how to land safe on that happy shore. Anybody here interested in knowing the way to heaven? I've said before, I've never met somebody that's interested in going to hell, even out of a sense of curiosity. We all want to know the way to heaven. And Wesley said, thanks be to God, he has shown the way. He has written it down in a book. He said, oh, give me that book and make me a man of one book. Well, that's what the article is saying. Holy Scripture contains all things necessary to salvation. You want to know how to land safe on that happy shore? It's written down in this book. Furthermore, the article says, whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man that it should be believed as an article of the faith. In other words, there'll be people that will tell you, you have to believe this, you have to believe that, you should believe this, you should believe that. Unless that can be proven by Holy Scripture, the article has said, you are not bound to obey it. In other words, you should not dance. You know, there's some Christian denominations that say you should not dance, or you should not drink, or you should not smoke, and you should not date girls who do. <laughs> but the question is, what does the Holy Scripture say about these things? In other words, man-made rules, some of which may have wisdom, nevertheless are not to be required as an article of faith or a matter of salvation unless it can be proven in Holy Scripture. 
Now you turn a page or two in those same historical documents, the same 39 articles, and you come to article number 20. This has to do with the authority of the church. What authority does the church have? Because that was one of the great issues at the time of the Reformation. You'll recall that the Catholic church, the medieval church at the time, was laying all kinds of rules and regulations upon the people. Like you had to go to confession and you had to purchase indulgences. There was a well-known Dominican monk by the name of John Tetzel. He used to walk through the streets ringing a bell and singing a little ditty. He said, for every coin and coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Of course, that really upset Martin Luther. It's one of the reasons why he nailed the 95 Theses to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral and sparked the Reformation. But the church was saying, these things are required. You have to do them. But here's what Article 20 says about the authority of the church. The church hath power to decree rites or ceremonies and authority in controversies of faith. And yet it is not lawful for the church to ordain anything that is contrary to God's word written. Nor may it so expound one place of scripture that it be repugnant to another. Wherefore, although the church be a witness and keeper of Holy Scripture, yet as it ought not to degree anything against the same, so besides the same ought it not to enforce anything to be believed for necessity of salvation. Now, I don't think it gets any clearer than that. So the church has, right on down through the centuries, recognized the value and the authority of the Bible. Now, this is very important because if the Bible is authoritative to our lives, that's where we start. You need to understand everybody has some form of authority in their life. For Christians, we have to say that the Bible is the authority. That is the starting point for all things that we do, for all decisions that we make. But if somebody else starts not with the Bible, with some other form of authority, you understand they are not going to end up at the same place that we are. If somebody, for example, starts off on a journey from Philadelphia and they begin traveling west, eventually they will hit California. If somebody else starts in Charleston and starts driving west, eventually they're going to hit California. Now, they may both be in California and they may both be in North America, but they're still going to be hundreds of miles apart. And so if the church abandons Holy Scripture and replaces it with some other form of authority, and that's their starting point, it is no wonder that they end up in a different place from us. So the first thing we need to say, the first thing that the Bible itself says about it, is that it is God's word. These are the oracles of God. It's a great advantage that the Jews had, and Paul would say it's a great advantage that we Christians have as well. Now, it's one thing to say that the Bible is the word of God. It's another thing to understand the Bible. How many of you find it difficult sometimes to understand, interpret, and read the Bible. Anybody out there have ever had trouble with that? Well, let's try to help you through that a little bit. There are some principles that you need to keep in mind when you approach, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament. These are things that you need to keep in mind if you're not going to get off track, if you're going to read, or as an older generation says, rightly divide the word of truth. The first thing you need to understand is the purpose of the Bible. Why was this given to us? Why did God give us his word? What is the purpose of the Bible? And in order to understand that, it's probably best to understand what the Bible was not given to do. The purpose of the Bible is not scientific. I'm going to come back to this again at the very end, but I want you to understand the Bible was not given to us to be a scientific textbook. Now, some people have tried over the centuries to make it a scientific textbook, but that's not why it was written. The Bible never claimed that for itself. The biblical writers never claimed it for themselves. Now, that's not to say that there aren't some things in the Bible that have scientific implications. Absolutely. 
For example, one of the claims of the Bible at the very beginning is that in the beginning, God created. The technical term that theologians sometimes use is ex nihilo, out of nothing. Now, that, that, is a, that is a biblical claim that everything that exists came into being because God called it into existence. And he did that by the sheer power of his word. Now, that is a claim that has scientific implications. It was a claim that was rejected by many scientists at the beginning of the 20th century. Until a man by the name of Edwin Hubble noticed that the universe was ever expanding. And he began to develop a theory known as the Big Bang. And many scientists, including Albert Einstein, initially resisted Big Bang cosmology. You know why? They said because it sounded too similar to Genesis. So, yes, the Bible does have scientific implications, but it's important that we understand that the Bible was never written to be a scientific textbook. And if we read it as a scientific textbook, meaning to teach us scientific facts as we understand them today, we are sure to get off track. So that's the first thing we need to understand, that it was not given for scientific purposes. Second thing, it was not given for purely literary purposes. Now, if you love the King James Version of the Bible, you may think that that is one of the finest pieces of English literature ever produced. And that is absolutely true. It is an extraordinary work of art. Probably the King James Version of the Bible and the 1662 prayer book are the finest pieces of English prose ever produced. But you have to remember that the Old and New Testaments weren't written in Elizabethan English, were they? They were written in Hebrew in the Old Testament and in the New Testament in Greek. And it wasn't high Greek. It wasn't classical Greek. It was Koine Greek. It was the Greek of the common man. And there are a lot of grammatical issues with the New Testament Greek. <laughs> Some of the writers are better writers than other writers. Here's what C.S. Lewis once said about the Apostle Paul. He said, I have no doubt that Paul had a first-rate theological mind. He said, but it seems to me that he was a rather bad writer. And if you read some of Paul's letters, you realize that he has great theological ideas, but some of his sentences go on and on and on and on, and you have to pause and remember what he was talking about. So the Bible wasn't written to be a great work of literature. It was written to convey a message, yes, but it wasn't written for literary sake alone. Nor was the purpose philosophical. Now, that's not to say, again, that the Bible doesn't have great wisdom. I think it has the greatest wisdom ever produced. But it was not written to be a philosophical textbook. It doesn't engage in idle speculation about many of the things that philosophers speculate about. For example, one of the great questions, great philosophical questions, is the question of suffering. It's the question of evil in the world. Where did evil come from? Why is it that people suffer? Now, somebody might say, well, we suffer because of the fall. Well, maybe, but maybe not. And furthermore, that doesn't answer the question as to why some people suffer more than others. We all acknowledge the fact that there are some people in the world who suffer terribly while others don't seem to suffer quite as bad. Why is that? Well, one of the interesting things is that philosophers speculate about that. They have speculated about it for centuries. The Bible does not. I'm going to preach about this in a couple of weeks. I'm going to talk about good suffering. Sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Good suffering? How can you have good suffering? The Bible is not really interested in why men suffer. Now, that's the question we all ask. Why is this happening to me? Why am I going through this? The Bible's not really interested in why. The Bible's more concerned with what? What God is doing in the midst of suffering. It does not engage in idle speculation. So while the Bible contains philosophy, while it contains great literature, while it contains scientific implications, it was not written for this 
purpose. The Bible was written to bring men and women who are estranged from God into fellowship with him. The Bible was written for the purpose of bringing salvation. Wesley got it right. I want to know one thing. I want to know the way to heaven. I want to know how, loud, how to land safe on that happy shore. And that is why the Bible was written. John chapter 21, it's toward the end of the gospel of John. You can go there if you want. But what John says at the end of his gospel, he said, Jesus did many other things that are not recorded in this book. Earlier says, Jesus did so many things that if I were to write them all down, I do not think that the world could contain the volumes. But what he says is Jesus did many that are not recorded in this book, but these are recorded so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. And that passage that we talked about in 2 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul says, all scripture is theopanustos and God breathed. He said it has been given for a purpose. And what is that purpose? He says that the man or woman may be mature, equipped for every good work. So when it comes to understanding the Bible, studying the Bible, that's the first thing you need to understand, the purpose of the Bible. Understand why it was given, understand why it was not given. Now, when it comes to interpreting the Bible, once we understand what its overall purpose is, then we've got to get into how we understand it properly. So let me give you a few hints as to how we should approach the Bible and the art of interpretation. The technical term for this is hermeneutics. The first thing is this. You have to approach the Bible with humility. First of all, because it is God's word. And second of all, because we are finite human beings who have finite minds. And this is far beyond our ability to comprehend. So we come with humility, recognizing that fact, and coming with humility also means that if you're going to read the Word of God properly, you have to come prayerfully. In other words, you need the illumination of the Holy Spirit to guide you. This is God's Word, but you need God's help. And even once you understand what the text is saying, you also need the illumination of the Holy Spirit to see how that applies specifically to your circumstances in your life. So we approach the Bible with humility. Here's the second thing. We recognize that this book has one author and one theme. One author. Now, it has many writers. We know that. Isaiah wrote some of the Old Testament. Jeremiah wrote some of the Old Testament. Moses wrote some of the Old Testament. Paul, Peter, James, these people wrote some of the New Testament. As many different writers, they have different styles, they have different interests. But what we believe is that while there are many writers, there is one author. That each of those men was carried along by the grace of the Holy Spirit so that even though they were writing in their own style, with their own interests, what ultimately was produced by the superintending process of the Holy Spirit was the Word of God. And you've heard me say this before. That's one of the reasons why we give lip service, at least, to this idea. If we read from the book of the prophet Isaiah or from Paul's epistle to the Romans in church, we don't get to the end and say the word of Isaiah or the word of Paul. We say what? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we have to remember to approach this with great humility, remembering it's God's word and we need God's help to understand it, recognizing that it has one author, God the Holy Spirit, and one theme. What's the one theme of the Bible? The one theme of the Bible from Genesis the whole way through to the book of Revelation is God's saving acts in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the one theme of the whole Bible. God's saving acts and purposes in Jesus Christ. Now, you might say, well, Jesus Christ doesn't appear until the New Testament. Not so. What about that image of the suffering servant in Isaiah? How he was bruised for our iniquities. 
It's a description of Jesus. You'll find no greater description of Jesus in all the Bible than that one of the suffering servant in the Old Testament. And if you were here on Christmas Eve, you heard me talk about the first proclamation of the gospel, the first time that the message of a coming Savior was ever pronounced to mankind was where? Well, it wasn't in Bethlehem. It was where? In Eden. Way back in the book of Genesis, when God said to the woman, I will put enmity between you and the woman's seed. You will strike at his heel, but one day the seed of the woman, the child of the woman, will crush your head. That was the description of what Jesus Christ was going to do on the cross. Jesus himself said, the law and the prophets find all their fulfillment in me. I've not come to abolish the prophets and the law, but to fulfill them. All of the promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus. All God's yeses are found in him. So one book, one author, one theme. Here's something else as you study the Bible. It's helpful to remember what the church has taught throughout the centuries. In other words, this is not a privatized faith, my friends. Every Sunday we stand up and we say, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. That is a reminder to us that Christian faith is a corporate faith. It is the faith once delivered to the saints. So if your interpretation of Scripture is contrary to what has been the understanding of the church down through the centuries, come with an ounce of humility and recognize that you're wrong. And here's a final thing that it's important to remember. The Bible was written for us but the Bible was not written to us. I think that's very important. The Bible was written for us, but the Bible was not written to us. It was written to whom? Well, to people who lived a very long time ago. And while it has implications and value and meaning for your life and mine today, it's very easy to misunderstand what the Bible is saying if we don't understand the historical context. And I'll show you how that's true in just a moment. So remember the Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. And that means, more specifically, that we always have to consider the context you never take a passage out of its context. You've all been in those kinds of situations where you're engaged in a conversation with somebody and somebody else jumps into the middle of the conversation and completely misunderstands what's been said. Why? Because they weren't there at the beginning and they're jumping into the middle of it and the consequences that they don't understand. Well, sometimes we do that with the Bible. So you always have to put the text in its context. You have to put a book of the Bible in the context of the whole Bible. And you have to put a passage of Scripture in the context of the entire book out of which it comes. Let me give you a perfect example of how if you lift a passage out of its context, you completely distort the meaning. All right? Now let's start with Ephesians 2. I've got two passages up there on the screen, but I want to start with Ephesians first, and then we'll turn to the Philippians passage. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. You know these verses very well. Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. How are we saved according to what Paul says in Ephesians 2? By what? By grace. Through what? Not by? Not by works. So are we saved by our works? Are we saved by grace through faith alone? It's not a trick question. Yes. All right. 
So you're telling me we're not saved by works, right? Who wrote this? Okay. Now, turn to Philippians for just a moment. It's easy to find. It's the next book. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Well, I thought Paul just said that we're not saved by our works. We're saved by grace, through faith, not by works, so that no man may boast. Who wrote the epistle to the Ephesians? Who wrote the epistle to the Philippians? Well, what does Paul seem to be saying here in Philippians? Seems to be contradictory. Now, what you'll discover is that that is not the case. Paul is very clear. We're saved by grace through faith, not by works. That is his unanimous testimony in every book he wrote, including Philippians. But what I have done is taken one passage, one verse out of context. And if you take one verse out of context, you completely misunderstand it. So as you approach the Bible, you cannot proof text. You know, sometimes people will do that. They'll say, I just need a word from the Lord today. And so they shut their eyes and they throw open the Bible and they point to a text and they say, I'm going to live by this text. And it said, Judas went out and hanged himself. And you say to yourself, well, that must not be the word for me today. So you, you close your eyes and you flip the Bible and you point this. This is the one. And it says, go and do likewise. You see what happens? You can't approach the Bible that way. Huge error. So you have to consider the context. Here's something else you have to consider, and that is the style of the literature. The Bible is one book, but it is really a library as well. It contains all different styles. You know this by reading through the Psalms, for example. The Psalms are like poetry. Proverbs are words of wisdom. But when you get to the Gospels, what you've got there is pretty much straightforward history. It's a biography. And then you get to the book of Revelation, and Revelation is a whole compilation of different kinds of literature. It's described as an apocalypse. It's described as a letter. It's described as a prophecy. It's a whole host of different things. Well, it's obvious you're not supposed to read poetry in the same way that you read history and vice versa. So you have to understand the style of literature. God speaks through all of those things. It's a reminder to us that God is not just an engineer. God is an artist. Otherwise, the world wouldn't just function. The world wouldn't have beauty. But it does. It does have beauty. It's an indicator to us that God is not just interested in how things work. He is interested in the aesthetics as well. So you have to consider the style, consider the fact that books contain multiple styles. Obviously, Isaiah's vision that he has in the year that King Uzziah died and he saw the Lord high and lifted up, that is different from what the apostles saw when Jesus appeared following the resurrection. And you also have to consider the purpose. Not only the purpose of the Bible itself, but the purpose of the particular passage. So when you read Leviticus and it has all those rules and regulations that the Jews were supposed to follow, understand what the overall purpose of Leviticus is. It doesn't necessarily mean that those things necessarily apply to our life today. It may be teaching something else, primarily the idea of God's holiness. So let me just give you an example of how we should approach a text, okay? And then if we have time, I'll, well, we may not have time, but if we have time, I'll answer your questions about this. And I just want you to reserve judgment until the end. This is an exercise in interpretation. Genesis chapters one through four. 
Now, you know what Genesis chapters one through four is all about. Describes the creation of the world. It describes the creation of man. It describes the fall of man. And it describes God's promise of redemption. Now, when you approach Genesis, you have to ask the question, what is the purpose of this passage? What is Genesis all about? What is the book of Genesis all about? Not just those four chapters, but Genesis as a whole. What does the word Genesis mean? Beginnings. So it's pretty clear that the book of Genesis is describing what? The beginning of all things. Now, it's the first book of the Bible, which means it's going to be foundational. The things that are taught in there are foundational. So as we approach Genesis, we want to consider that, the purpose of the passage. What is the style of this literature? It's clearly not like the book of Proverbs. It's clearly not like the book of Psalms. It's not exactly like the book of Revelation, but there are similarities between Genesis and Revelation. For example, Genesis speaks of a tree of life, and it speaks of a serpent. The book of Revelation also speaks of the tree of life. It reappears there at the end of the Bible, and it also speaks of a serpent, that old serpent who is the what? The devil. So what kind of literature is Genesis? Well, it's obviously describing the beginning of all things. So we would have to say that there is an historical element here. It certainly describes historical characters. As the book goes on, we learn about Abraham. We learn about Noah. We learn about people like that. These were historical figures. But as you read through Genesis, it becomes very clear. It's not history in the way that you and I understand history. Remember, this book was written for us. It was not written to us. When was Genesis written? Thousands of years ago. Do you think the people living thousands of years ago lived in a culture similar to ours? Do you think if you were transported back thousands of years in time to this time period, you would find things that were familiar to you? It would be like being dropped down on a foreign planet. You have no idea. People lived in a very different way thousands of years ago. That's not to say there aren't some commonalities, but certainly they are different. And here's what's interesting. When they wrote history, they wrote history differently than we do. We are the products of the 18th century enlightenment. When we write history, we expect, what's that old dragnet line? Just the facts, ma'am. And not only do we want the facts, but the facts have to be in what? Chronological order. You cannot talk about the Gettysburg Address until you talk first about the firing on Fort Sumter, because we would say that the Gettysburg Address doesn't make sense unless we understand that within the context of the war between the states, which began what? Two years earlier than that in 1861. So that's the way we write history, but you need to understand that in the ancient world, they didn't necessarily write history that way. You may notice that when you read through the Gospels, for example, the Gospel writers are writing down the events of Jesus' life and ministry. But you read through the Gospels, and you'll discover that sometimes they place events from Jesus' life, the same events, in different places in Jesus' ministry. And that's because the Gospel writers weren't interested in giving us a blow-by-blow -blow chronological account of Jesus' life and ministry. They were giving us the account of Jesus' life and ministry, the historical facts, but they were doing it in a certain way as to convey a particular message, organizing the material as they saw fit. And that's how they wrote history in the ancient world. So this is not a blow-by-blow -blow account. And furthermore, because it's not a blow-by-blow -blow account, there are a lot of unanswered questions. Let me give you an example of an unanswered question. Go to Genesis for just a minute. Genesis chapter 4. Now, Genesis chapter 4 is the story of Cain and Abel. Adam and Eve had two sons, right? Cain and Abel. Cain did what to Abel? Killed him. Cain killed Abel. First murder. 
Now, what happened when Cain killed Abel? Well, we're told that God became angry with Cain. We'll start at verse 8 in Genesis chapter 4. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know, am I my brother's keeper? One of the great lines. We've often said that. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. That is the judgment on Cain for killing his brother Abel. He is going to be a wanderer on the earth. Look at verse 13. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. For behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Wait a minute. Whoever finds me will kill me. Who's the whoever? Up to this point, it's only four people. It's only Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. Where'd these other people come from? And the Lord said, that will not be the case. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone find him and attack him. Where did these other people come from? The Bible doesn't even answer that. Now, there's been a great deal of speculation down through the centuries, but you'll notice the Bible writers are not interested in that. Now, we seem to think that we're the first people to ever ask these questions. This is a very sophisticated form of literature. These stories were passed on from generation to generation. So you can just imagine a father sharing this with his son and his son suddenly saying, where did those people come from? And what do you think the father would have said? Well, you know, son, I never thought of that. No, he's not going to say that. What he's going to say is you're missing the point. That's not the point. See, they wrote history in a different way than we write history today. That's why scholars sometimes refer to Genesis chapters 1 through 4 as mythopoeic literature. Now, I need to qualify that because the minute we say myth, people get very anxious. A myth. Oh, that's a made-up story. That's a fable. That's a fairy tale. You know, like the Greek myths. That's not what scholars understand myth to be, all right? That's what we mean by myth, but that's not what the scholarly community means by myth. What does the scholarly community mean by myth? I'm going to give you a definition. Mythology. This is by John Walton. He's a professor of Old Testament at Wheaton College. Great Old Testament scholar. I've met him on a couple of occasions. Brilliant man. This is what he says. He says, this is the most troubling category for those who take the Bible seriously. We get a little defensive if anyone compares Genesis to mythology. We think of mythology as make-believe stories of Greek and Roman gods acting in ways that are undignified, perverse, selfish, even ridiculous. Comparison of the Bible to these pagan fairy tales strikes us as a diabolical distortion of God's word, a paradox of highest proportion. To find any fruitful comparison, however, we must get beyond the superficial level of the content of mythology to its function in ancient culture. Here it comes. Mythology in the ancient world was like science in our modern world. It was their explanation of how the world came into being and of how it worked. The gods had purposes, and their activities were the causes of what humans experienced as effects. In contrast, our modern scientific approach attempts to understand cause and effect based on natural laws. Mythology is thus a window to culture. It reflects the worldview and values of the culture that forged it. For ancient Israelite culture, many of the writings we find in the Old Testament performed the same function as mythology did in other cultures. It gave the Israelites a literary mechanism for preserving and transmitting their worldview and values. When we read the mythology of the ancient Near East, 
we discover how these ancient peoples thought about themselves, their world, and their gods. When we read Genesis, we see how Israelites thought about themselves, their world, and their God. Whether the Israelite views were the same as their neighbors, as they sometimes were, or diametrically opposed, there is value in the comparison. So, science is that great mythology of today. Doesn't mean that it's made up, doesn't mean that it's a fairy tale. It's just the mechanism or the means by which we understand how the world works today. That's what the word mythology means to scholars. It's the story that explains how things are. So when scholars say that Genesis is mythopoeic, what they're saying is not that it's false, but it is a story that is meant to help us understand why the world is the way that it is and why human beings are the way that we are. C.S. Lewis, who was a professor of literature, understood this very well. He said, the Christian myth is the true myth. So that's what scholars mean by mythopoeic language. It is telling history, but it is using symbolic language in order to do that. So if that's the case, what are we meant to learn from this? If this is meant to be history, but it's not meant to be straightforward, clunky, chronological history, what are we supposed to learn from this? Well, first of all, the important thing, again, if a child said, where did they come from? The father would say, you're missing the point. Here's the point, he would say. Number one, God created the world. God created the world, and he created the world out of nothing. That was the Jews' understanding of how the world came into being. Now, other people had other stories as to how the world came into being, other, quote, mythologies. They talked about God slaughtering each other or giving birth and so forth. The Jews said, we know that there is one God, not many, and he created the world by the sheer power of his word, ex nihilo. That's the first thing. When did he do it? That's the question we want to know. Well, when did this happen? Did this happen 10,000 years ago? Did this happen 10 million years ago? Is the world young? Is the earth young? Is the world old? Genesis doesn't say anything about those things. Now, we are fascinated by that, and there are endless controversies about that, and Christian denominations have divided about that, but the book of Genesis says absolutely nothing about when God did this. It just says at the beginning, whatever that was. Here's the second important thing. God made the world good. We're told that he got to the end of it, and he pronounced a blessing upon everything that he has made. God said, it is good, it is good, it is very good. But when it says that God created the world good, we want to say, well, then why are there mosquitoes? Why are there no seams? Well, see, those are the questions we're interested in. But when we say God created the world good and looked at what he made and he said it was good, he meant it was good for him. He meant it was what he intended. My goodness, if I sent out a survey and asked every single one of you to describe the perfect world, I would probably, given the fact there may be 100 people here, and I don't know how many people online, I would probably get 100 different answers as to what the ideal world is. What is good for Bill Warlick may not be good for Jeff Miller. So when Genesis said God created it good, it means it was good according to his design, his purpose, his plan, whatever that is. Here's the third thing we learned. God created man in his image, in the likeness of God. Now, we want to ask the question, how did he do that? The text says from the dust of the earth, but is that meant to be literally God from the dust of the earth formed man? Or is there some sort of evolutionary process that God used? Because that's what science says. There is an evolutionary process that there were these pre-Adamic hominids and God perhaps took one of them and breathed into him the breath of life. Are we really related to the monkeys? The DNA certainly seems to say that we are closely related to the apes. Genesis doesn't say. And here's a shock for you. 
I don't think Genesis cares. Because in Genesis, they are not concerned with mechanism. This is very important. Write this down. The author of Genesis is not concerned with the little questions. And questions about evolutionary science. Genesis would say those are little questions. Genesis is concerned with the big questions. Not how, but who. God. Genesis is more interested in agency than mechanism. It's more interested in the fact that God did it than how God did it. And I'm not entirely sure if God was going to explain it in Genesis thousands of years ago to a people who don't have the advantages of modern science that we do today, that we, they would have understood it anyway. So Genesis is silent on the matter of how God did. All we know is that God did. And it's clear when we look at the world. When was the last time you saw an ape read a book? Or write a symphony? We recognize that human beings, however close they may be genetically to the apes, are distinct. They are different. We're not only creatures of time, we're aware of the fact that we are above time and the time is passing us by. Here's the fourth thing we learn. Man fell. And the consequence of that fall was death. Physical death, perhaps, but spiritual death primarily. Fifth thing is this, creation suffered. Paul says, all of creation moans as in travail. Now, what many people assume that means is that when mankind fell, all of a sudden, thorns and thistles begin to infest the world. I want to take you back there. Just hang in there with me for just a few minutes. I know we're running over, but I want to finish this. I want you to turn back to Genesis chapter 2 for just a minute. And I want you to read the text closely. Here's a perfect example of how we sometimes just skim over little details. But if we look at things closely, we might gain a new perspective. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 tells the story of the creation of man. And we read this, 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, here's the first thing you learn if you listen to that carefully, is that man was not created in the Garden of Eden. How many of you assume that God created man in the Garden of Eden? Text doesn't say that, does it? It says that God created man from the dust of the earth and placed him in the Garden of Eden. Now, why is that important? Because of chapter 3, verse 19, which tells the story of the fall. And this is God's curse on the man for doing what he should not have done, eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 19, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat your bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. The literal translation is, till you return to the ground from which you were taken. Now, what was the consequence of mankind disobeying God? Well, that death, but the immediate result was what? They were driven out of the Garden of Eden, weren't they? So if you read Genesis closely, what we're told is that God created man from the dust of the earth, created a garden, and put the man in the garden, which was sort of protective custody, where he had access to the tree of life, but he could not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When man disobeys and eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, so that he won't live forever and have access to the tree of life, God does what? Drives him out of the garden to the place where he had been created, where there are thorns and thistles. Which doesn't necessarily mean that there was a change in the created order. It was just that the consequence of the rebellion was that they were driven out to that place where there were thorns and thistles. And that's a different understanding of things, isn't it? 
And it just goes to show us how important it is to read the text carefully. So we need to look at the big picture and not get caught up sometimes on these minor debates about things. Questions not worth fighting over when God created the world. Does it really matter if the world is young or old? No. It's not worth fighting over how long it took God to create the world, whether it was six 24-hour days or six billion years, because a day is like a thousand years to the Lord. And there's no use fighting over whether God used some evolutionary process or whether he actually took the dust of the earth. Some people say, well, I'm offended by the fact that I might have come from an ape. Well, I'm telling you, coming from the dust of the earth ain't much better. The Bible's not interested in those things. And we miss the forest for the trees. What is Genesis teaching us? If we look at it closely, what is the Bible teaching us? The great things, the foundational things, the things that explain why the world is the way that it is and the way that we are. That number one, God created the world out of nothing. He created a world that was good and pleasing to him. He created man in his image and placed him in protective custody in a place where he could live forever. But man, wanting to be God himself, rebelled against God. And the consequence of that, he was driven away from God's presence into a place of suffering and pain and misery. But the good news is that God has promised that the seed of the woman would one day crush the head of the serpent. Hallelujah. That's the good news. Now, somebody might say, well, this is all very complicated. My goodness. I want you to understand the Bible is a book for adults. It is a book for adults. Its message is simple enough for the child. But it's not simplistic. Nor should we think it so. Because after all, this is whose word? God's word. And so we approach it with humility. Approach it prayerfully, humbly, willing to live under its authority and praying for the wisdom and guidance of God, the Holy Spirit, to lead us in the path of righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for your word. We thank you that you speak to us through it today. And sometimes we do. We approach it so cavalier, such a cavalier manner, so carelessly. Grant us the grace to come, recognizing that we cannot understand anything that is here except by the grace and illumination of your Holy Spirit. And once you tell us and show us what it means, grant us the grace, the courage, and the desire to live under its authority, that we may let our light so shine before men that others may see our good works and come to know him whom to know is life everlasting. Even Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you. What's that? Okay, you're welcome.